and welcome to the Guys Like Us podcast. This is your host, Tyler Brondike. Today's episode, I'll be chatting with Herschel York, pastor of Buck Run Baptist Church and also a professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Welcome back, everyone. This is Tyler Brondike here. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. Today, I'll be chatting with Herschel York. Herschel is the pastor of Buck Run Baptist Church and is also a professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. In this podcast, we'll chat a lot about his early upbringings and his background story, going back all the way to pretty vivid memories at the age of five and then coming to Christ at the age of seven. Originally from a small southern town, and then moving on to Detroit, and then actually going back to Brazil. He spent the first two years of his life in Brazil as his dad was a missionary. So Herschel has definitely seen it all, and he shares a bit more about his experience when he's 19 years old, moving back to Brazil, and then actually teaching Sunday school in Portuguese just after six weeks of being there which is incredibly crazy and great and and just shows God's power at work. We discuss mastering certain behaviors that can make an effective preacher, and this comes from his book with Burt Decker. He gives examples of voice tone, eye communication, and posture, to name a few. So that is just a bit about what we cover in this episode, and I'm excited for you all to tune in and to give it a listen. Talk to you soon. Hello and welcome to the Guys Like Us podcast. This is your host, Tyler Brondike, and today I am joined with Herschel York. He is the pastor of Buck Run Baptist Church and is also a professor at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. So without further ado, um, Pastor York, thanks so much for joining today. Well, thank you, Tyler. It's a joy to be with you. Thank you. Um, just to get things kicked up, kicked off, I'd like to open up in prayer, and and then we can get started. Okay. Dear Lord, thank you for bringing uh, Pastor Herschel York and I together today. Incredibly blessed and grateful of everything that you have poured into both of our lives, um, and the people, and just the, all the gifts that have been that have been a blessing on our lives today. Excited to hear Pastor York's uh, ministry, his perspective, and just being a follower of Jesus and what that means for him. Um, and then also just excited to dive into some some different topics as well, um, as as he is quite experienced and has, uh, I'm sure, a lot to say. So I just pray for your for your anointing and for your and, and for the Spirit to be to be present and ever more present during this conversation today. And in Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. 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 So uh, to get things kicked off, um, just kind of want to open up, hear more, a, a bit more about your background. Um, and, and I know that preaching the word of God has, has been your calling, you know, as a, as a, as a preacher now and also just as a professor and, and, and through teaching as well. But um, has this been something that has always been in your plan? Can you, can you take us through these early days when you yeah. When you started following Jesus, and then kind of when that 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 time to start, you know, when you decided that you, you'd be a preacher. Okay. Um, well, I was 
moving to a, a, actually a missionary's home. Uh, my dad was a missionary in Brazil when I was very small, but we came back to the United States uh, before I was even two, so I, I had no memory of that. But missions certainly informed our our whole lives, and Brazil's actually ended up being a, a major part of my life. Uh, and uh, so my dad was a pastor, uh, mostly in Kentucky. I grew up in extremely rural western Kentucky, and when I was five years old, I. I mean, I, I can remember the night I became aware of my lostness. And it was not, I mean, it wasn't like a fear of going to hell. It, it was a knowledge of my sin. And, I mean, I, I did know hell was real, but it, it, there was just a sense of separation from God. And I lived with that for over a year, uh, just, just condemned and felt that and, would talk to my dad and my dad very wisely would just, just always tell me the gospel and never pushed, uh, or anything, but just always pointed me to Christ. And just after I turned seven, I, I had, uh, I mean, there was just a, a, a giving over of my sin to Jesus. And, uh, I put my faith in him you know, I'm 57, so it's been 50 years ago. I've never had a serious doubt about the reality of what happened that night, uh, that I trusted Christ. I, I know some people are a little leery of childhood conversions, but, um, uh, you know, I, I have five decades of saying, man, that, that was real. Um, when I was 10 years old, I went in my dad's study and I, I was really just feeling God calling me into ministry. And I told dad, I said, I think God's calling me to preach, but I don't want people to think that, you know, I'm doing this just because you're my dad. I know people will think that. And he just said to me, he said, Hirsch, don't worry about what anybody thinks. He said, if God calls you to do something when you're 10, you need to just say yes when you're 10. You need to just always grow accustomed to saying yes to whatever God leads you to do. And man, it was great advice. Um, so I grew up really with a sense of God's calling on my life. Uh, went through a very brief time in my late, late teens where I was thinking maybe it was something else. Maybe I could do something else. I, uh, went to Michigan state university. Uh, and you know, my freshman year was probably my spiritual nadir uh, and, and, there I just had to really sort through whether or not these were my convictions or my dad's was God's call my life real and, and I settled that my freshman year in college and uh, that's uh, I once again just totally surrendered to the Lord and said Lord whatever you want me to do I will do and uh, that very summer I spent the summer in Brazil doing mission work came back uh, I would tell you that my, when I was 15 my dad actually accepted a church in Detroit. So I went from extreme rural Western Kentucky to Detroit, Michigan, mm. uh, and, and, and went to the same high school Eminem went to, lived in the same neighborhood Eminem lived <laughs> in, at uh, 8 Mile and Van Dyke uh, in Detroit. And uh, so that's how I ended up in, in Michigan. But uh, so there, you know, I, I worked with my dad uh, in his church for a year. And then when I was uh, 20 years old, I accepted the call to go to, Lexington to work on staff at Ashland Avenue Baptist Church in Lexington, where I spent seven years there uh, on staff, uh, finished up 
my BA and did a master's in classical languages at the University of Kentucky. And then from there went to seminary in Memphis at Mid-American Baptist Seminary. Uh, came back to Ashland Avenue as pastor, same church that I had been at. And, and so I was pastor there seven years. And from there went to Southern Seminary in 1997. Uh, so the last 20 years I've, I've been at Southern. And 14 years ago, uh, Buck Run called me to be pastor and said, we'll, we'll let you do both things. So uh, for the last 14 years, I've, I've been uh, both a full-time seminary professor teaching preaching and pastoral ministry at Southern. I've pastored Buck Run. And uh, just a year ago, we moved into a brand new building. We totally relocated our church uh, and moved into a nice new facility on 100 acres. And uh, the Lord is just really blessing. So mm. I'm, I'm incredibly blessed. Uh, doing get, I, I get to do both things that I love, which is teaching preachers and in walking through life with, with the church community and, and preaching the word to them every week. Wow, that's that's incredibly powerful and uh, quite the journey too. Start going all the way back to when you were just five years old, and um, I, I don't. I'm trying to think now if I even have any memories at the age of five, um, and I'm and I'm still quite young myself. So I, I think I any any memories I have now, I feel like I'll lose them in the next few years. Um, wow, <laughs> uh, I, I I have uh, I can remember very very early in my life, um, yeah. and I just had, had a a growing awareness of the things of the Lord from a very, very young age. Wow. And and something I wanted to focus on is, um, you know, so at that time of five, you know, when you were five years old, and then you mentioned again at the, you know, at the age of seven years old is really kind of when you, I guess, officially yeah. officially started that, that journey. But so what, what right. those two years in between, um, what what would you call, you know, what would have you had called yourself? Uh, would you have called yourself a Christian uh, at that uh, point? No. Myself lost. I was I was lost and and under the condemnation of sin, uh, and just I knew I was lost. Uh, and you know, you just you uh, you sort of tell you. Uh, I mean, I told myself uh, you'll get over this, and uh, you know, it's not it's not that bad. But you know, I just had this incredible awareness that I was a sinner, mm. that uh, I was separate from God. And I, I, you know, I, you, I wanted to do something. I kept wanting to do something. If, if I, only if I could, you know, if there was some task I could complete or do that would make God happy. And uh, you know, my dad just kept putting it on faith, and he just kept telling me, you know, that, that salvation is by grace through faith. And and uh, and really, the night that I trusted Christ, it was a it was a surrender. It was a ceasing from my own works. I, I mean, I really, it just like I gave up and I, I began to rest in Christ. It was the most incredible feeling that a seven-year-old boy could have. I mean, just to be free. I remember just being overwhelmed with joy. It was like this incredible weight had been lifted off my shoulders. And uh, I, as I put my trust in Christ. Wow. And then, and then, as soon as that happened, right? It was kind of, I guess, you know, twelve, thirteen years, kind of before you really, um, I guess, were you know had that official calling to to start, you know, getting yeah. into into the ministry. How was how was God preparing you during that time? Do you remember some 
some vivid memories of uh, of of different times when he w- when he was equipping you to to learn or to experience. Um, oh yeah, well, my childhood was not your ordinary childhood. Uh, my dad was a phenomenal pastor. He was just an incredible dad. Uh, so I loved the Bible. I mean, I by the time I was six, I knew the content of the Bible. I mean, God, Dad just told me really all the stories. I, I could, I could tell you incredible detail of Old Testament, New Testament narratives. I, I knew the content of the Bible, and um, so uh, Dad, you know, had this incredible library of uh, theology books. He had those old uh, green banner of truth books and uh puritan reprints and uh so i told him i wanted to i wanted to study theology so when i was eight uh we went and we just sort of you know over the course of time over two years we went through strong's theology uh and when i was 12 we went through burkhoff uh burkhoff systematic theology so this was my childhood uh i just always felt a love of the things of the Lord. Now I was like every other kid, uh, you know, I had my struggles and, and did bad things. And I don't want to paint myself like, you know, I was uh, St. Francis of Assisi, but mm-hmm. I, 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 I did have a, a, a heart that wanted to honor the Lord. And mm-hmm. uh, my dad really taught me the word of God well and theology. And um, it, it was, uh, it was a great childhood. And then, Again, when we moved to Detroit, uh, things changed somewhat. I began to sort of get distant from the Lord. But uh, my freshman year uh, at Michigan State, when I really had to sort through those things, I had something of a crisis of faith. Uh, the Lord really there uh, just reiterated his calling on my life. And, and there's been no looking back since then. Wow. Wow. So as you... You know, I guess advice that you would have for people that um, that might be considering that becoming a preacher or pastor is in their calling. Is there a few key elements that you believe are are needed um, for someone to, for someone to step into that path? Yeah, I think there are basically five things that you need to look at. Uh, one, obviously, is the Word of God. God's never going to act inconsistently with his word. So he's never going to call you to do something that's inconsistent with the word. Uh, and so uh, you always have to gauge whatever's happening in your heart. It, does this match the word of God? Secondly, though, I do think he works on your desire. Uh, I think if God calls you to do something maybe that previously you never saw yourself doing, he will change your desire. He'll, he'll shape your desire to match the thing that he's calling you to do, you you will be find fulfillment in it. Uh, thirdly, he'll give you a gifting. He's not going to call you to do something that you can't cut. I think there'll be uh, a, a skill set or a gifting that comes along with the call so that you are able to do it. Fourth, I think he'll give you opportunity to do it. Uh, you know, you will find places to do the thing that you're called to do. And then fifth, I think you'll give you the testimony of other believers around you, most notably in the church, uh, that people will see God's hand and God's call on you. And I think they'll affirm that. They'll say things to you like, hey, have you thought about doing this? Or, yes, I, I, I think it, it seems 
good that you do that. You know, if you look in the book of Acts, when Saul and Barnabas were at the church at Antioch, the, the, Holy, the Holy Spirit said to the church, separate Saul and Barnabas for the ministry. Uh, so uh, I, I believe God speaks to and in the local church. I think that's an essential relationship for someone discerning the will of God. And, mm-hmm. uh, that's why I think ordination matters so much. It's not, not merely someone saying, hey, God's told me to do this, but the church affirms, yes, we see God's gifting, God's enabling, his giving you opportunity and calling uh, in, in your life, and we affirm that. Mm. Wow. And, and that's something I want to touch on, too, is just the, I guess, the involvement of, the, you know, with the church and I guess how it's changed or, or you know, changed over time. Um, and, and I'll get to that. But but first, I wanted to, to touch on um, just growing up and, and now being the, you know, the pastor of a, you know, Southern Baptist church. So I know for a handful of folks that are listening and myself, candidly included, might not have the, the most knowledge of, I guess, key principles and, and, and key tenets of, of what this denomination uh, really focuses on. Would you mind just giving a, a quick snapshot on, on, on what you all believe? Surely. Well, uh, Southern Baptist, uh, well, we have a, a doctrinal statement that are the things that are generally believed by us. It's called the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. And it's available. Anybody could look that up and, and read in detail. Uh, really what Southern Baptists stand for. And though that document's not binding on individual churches, it it is binding on those that work for the denomination, like in a seminary or one of our missions agencies. But basically, you know, Baptists uh, believe in the autonomy of the church. So uh, we believe that every church is independent and answers directly to the Lord. We don't believe in the hierarchy. So there's no... uh, bishop or, or uh, any denominational uh, mechanism over the local church. So in the Southern Baptist Convention, it's all Southern Baptist churches were voluntarily uh, cooperating. And so we, we give our money to a central mission fund. We call the cooperative program. And out of that, about half of that goes to our international missions. And then the rest is about up between our North American missions and we have six seminaries. We have the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. And then the, the very, very minor uh, cost, really, for our denomination uh, itself. Uh, so all, so we cooperate together at the local level and what we call associations. And then at the state level, we have state conventions. And then all of them work together in the in Southern Baptist Convention. So we have about 50,000 churches, uh, I think. Uh, and... Again, no, no one. Every church is totally autonomous and independent. So no Buckrun can change our constitution and bylaws or do whatever we want. We don't have to clear it with anyone. Uh, but we voluntarily cooperate with all these other churches because we can do more together. We can have a true global strategy uh, to reach the world with the gospel. We also do a lot of of disaster relief. Uh, our uh, North American Mission Board. Uh, disaster relief is one of the big three, along with the Salvation Army and the Red Cross, uh, that really get a seat at the table with FEMA and the White House and, and disaster relief. And we do that because we, we have a huge denominational mechanism behind it that can make that happen. And so and we train volunteers. We have a, a global missionary force 
of about 4,000 international and about that same number in uh, North America. So uh, it's, uh, it's, we've discovered that we, we can really carry out the Great Commission through local churches, but in cooperation with all other local churches of like faith and uh, belief. Well, okay, great. No, thanks, thanks so much for that background. And something that, that, that really struck out to me was the, the community aspect and the, the community focus. And really, you know, I, I think there's definitely a strong sense of passion and, 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 and just, um, and, and as you mentioned, I think outreach and resilience as you have churches really across the world that are, you know, of this denomination of Southern Baptist. And I, and I want to speak on this community aspect too, and and really the the brick and mortar church, as a you know as a grassroots and as the foundation. I I think in in the century that we're in now and the the time that we're in now, I think a lot of people, um, especially millennials, are losing touch with with you know traditional service and, and furthermore their involvement. So I wanted to know your your take on. Do we do we get back to our roots and and really put a focus back into doing this, or do we shift and adjust on how we spread the gospel, or can we can we do both? Well, there are things I think that are non-negotiable, and then things that have to change with culture and time. I think the non-negotiable is that we we are part of local churches now. Those local churches can be house churches. They can be mega churches. They can be multi-site churches. I think they can take a lot of forms. There are a lot of different ways that we can be faithful to the New Testament, uh, and, and it, it can look like different things. But uh, it's still there is a local church uh, that is autonomous that is doing the work of the Great Commission and uh, and teaching the gospel and holding us accountable. This is why I think this, this is why the local church is so important is that there are no lone rangers of the gospel. You know, we're, we're not just out there doing our own thing with no accountability and not answering anyone for, for our doctrine. In the local church, we have a, we have a continuity uh, really with our history, with uh, the, the doctrine that we espouse, that we say we see in the scriptures, and we correct one another, we provoke one another to love and good works and encourage one another. Uh, as uh, we see the day approaching, as Hebrews says. So I, I think that has to take place. Now, it can take place in a lot of different ways, but the, the, the basic principle of participation in and accountability to a local church, I think, does not change. Uh, so how do, how do you do that? You know, I've been in uh, China and worked with pastors and house churches there. I've been in Cuba where they have to have house churches. They're not allowed to have buildings. And I've seen that. My best friend pastors a church in Manaus, Brazil, that my dad helped plant 50 years ago that is today, has 28 campuses and tens of thousands of people. Uh, and, you know, it, it looks different, but that same principle is there of accountability and faithful teaching and discipleship uh, going into all the world, making disciples and baptizing them, teaching them to observe all things that, Christ is commanded. So that's where I think millennials uh, don't, I, I would urge them, you know, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. It, it doesn't have to look like, you know, the Baptist church that I grew up in, uh, but it, it still has to meet those same commands of Jesus. And 
let's let's always work toward ways to be faithful to what Christ has given us to do across time and across uh, countries and boundaries uh, in order to carry out the commission that Christ has given us. Mm, absolutely. And yeah, you mentioned earlier your 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 ties to Brazil and and kind of how those have become part of your life as well, and just that yeah. that brief story there, right? Of just tens of thousands of of, of folks and twenty you know twenty eight campuses in in um yeah. in Manaus. That's crazy. That is incredible. It, it is amazing. Uh, my good friend Ed Stetzer, uh, Ed had heard me. You know, I talk about going. I go down there and go peacock bass fishing all the time. Oh yeah. Uh, Stetzer uh, last summer said, "Hey, I want to take my my daughter down there. Can you hook me up?" I said, "Sure, man. I, you know, I'll call my my friend down there." And and he went down there to go fishing, but he also saw the Nova Igreja Batista there in Manaus, which is just a phenomenal ministry. And, and Ed told me he said it's the it's the most atypical mega church he's ever seen uh, because they're they're just. They're doing it. They're, they literally are. They exist all over the city. I took a doctoral seminar down there one time. A, a cohort of D men guys that uh, were studying with me at Southern, and we went downtown Manaus. And I said, "Let's see if we can find anybody in this town who's not heard of that church." And we could not find anybody that day. That, that uh, this church has had such an impact on the city of Manaus. Uh, it's just a massive, massive operation, mm. and they're doing it differently. And they do stuff I wouldn't do. Frankly, uh, you know, that's okay. My best friend pastors there. And, uh, he does stuff that I wouldn't do, but they do it well. They do it to the glory of Christ. And I, I'm, I'm definitely okay with that. I know that they're fulfilling the Great Commission. So this is what I would urge guys to do. Find a way to be faithful, even if the, the culture and the time demands that it, it maybe it's not brick and mortar, or maybe it's multiple bricks and mortar, uh, but just, just find a way to, to be faithful to what the New Testament says. Wow, wow, absolutely. And and I, well, I'm, I'm trying to think now, and I, your your time in Mano you know, in, in Brazil, I guess from zero to two, which, um, you know, when you, when your father was was a missionary, and then, and, you know, ended up going, you end up going back um, in your yeah. tw in your twenties. Is that correct? The first time you went back. I went back when I was nineteen. Nineteen. First time I went back when I was nineteen. But I, I, my wife and I go just about every year. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I preach and teach down there a lot. Yeah. And like I said, our, our I have three guys I call my best friends, and one one of them is is David Hatcher, who's a pastor of Novi Gnosia Bautista there in Manaus. And yeah. we go down and visit them every year. Wow! And and this is I I almost think of this as kind of like the uh, a prodigal son too, right? I mean, you're, you're somebody is you're you're coming almost coming back to home, but just in a different yeah, way. It is. It's in my blood. Uh, you know, I, uh, I, technically, my first language was Portuguese. When we came back, you know, my uh, my grandmother said, you know, I, I, I didn't know English. And she would tell me stories about, you know, she even remembered the Portuguese words that I, I said when I'd fall down and stuff. But I had no memory of that. But when I went back when I was 19, uh, I was teaching Sunday school in like six weeks. So the... The, in Portuguese, you know, so the, Jeez. the the stuff that was in my brain that I did not even remember came back readily and quickly, and uh, so now I, I, I would call myself almost fluent in Portuguese. I, I could certainly get by and, mm. and uh, carry on conversations and teach a lot. Um, so 
the Lord's been good in that way, and it, it, it really has become second home for us. Mm-hmm. We're very, very comfortable in, really in Latin America in general, but specifically Brazil, yeah. and even more specifically in Manaus. Wow, wow. Great. I, I want to shift gears a little bit and, and touch on, um, you know, one of your, I guess, most recent books and then kind of, and then a theme that came out of that, of just being a persuasive communicator. So in your book, Speaking with Bold Assurance, um, you touch on this, this topic and provide a few tools to be effective and powerful as a persuasive communicator. Um, just want to know what what a few of those are. Just kind of a little sneak peek into the book and some some practical yeah. uh, practical advice. Well, uh, I learned what what I have uh, written and taught from my good friend and co-author Bert Decker, who's the CEO of Decker Communications. And uh, Bert is uh, he's just a he's a million dollar roundtable speaker, and this is what he's done for a living for years. He he has trained people like. Charles Schwab, uh, a former Speaker of the House of Representatives, uh, Olympic gold medalist who go on speaking tours, uh, retired generals. Uh, you know, these are the kind of people he works with. And uh, he, Bert, identified several behaviors. You know, you, you hear, you can listen to. Let's put it in the context of preaching. You you listen to two different preachers. They could preach this exact same sermon. And yet one of them holds your interest and one does not. So when, you know, content certainly matters, but we've all heard the guys that, you know, there's nothing wrong with their content. They're biblical, but they still put you to sleep. We've even heard the guys that maybe we agree with everything they say, but they still make us mad. There's something about them that just (laughs) sets us on edge. Sure. So uh, we've identified certain behaviors that if you if you learn to master these behaviors, it helps you communicate so that people listen. Now we're not saying that if you master these behaviors, that you know a person is necessarily going to trust Christ or whatever. What we're saying is they don't even give you they don't even give you an authentic rejection if they're not really listening to you. And we want them to at least genuinely hear what we're saying. So we talk about things like eye communication. We, we don't say eye contact. We talk about eye communication. We talk about gestures and facial expression and, uh, and your posture and movement, uh, humor. Uh, your voice and vocal variety is really important, and it's often neglected by preachers. We tend to be uh, more monotone than we dare think. But we, we talk about how to make your voice rise and fall. And, and you see, all this works because your, your brain actually has two different parts. You've got that cerebral cortex that's your higher reasoning, the part of your brain that thinks and reasons things out. But there's another part of your brain, we, we call it the first brain, that is, you know, it's the, the fight or flight uh, part of your brain that responds instantly on a, a, a subconscious level. And what that part of your brain does is it decides whether or not it's going to let information in. So people who are what we call first brain communicators are the people that know how to get the gate open so that the information goes in so that people genuinely hear it. You can tell like the people that little children respond to or people with diminished capacity feel safe with 
those tend to be first brain communicators. And for a communicator of the gospel, it's so important that when you're talking about the greatest gift ever offered, that you look like you're offered a good thing. It, it is disconcerting that so many preachers, while they're telling people about the greatest gift ever offered by the greatest man who ever lived, they're doing it like they're suffering from a gallbladder attack. Yeah. And they, or at, or even worse than that, probably, is they're, they're just dull and lifeless and boring. So we really work with preachers to help them make the tone of their sermon uh, and the presentation of the sermon match the content so that it it sounds like they're offering good news. Mm, absolutely. And that that's something that um, you know I've learned just through giving presentations and my experience in sales too. It's it's incredibly important, right? You know, Jesus was the, was the greatest teacher, salesman, and you know you can go on and on. But yeah. but being, do, I think we do Jesus a disservice, like in movies. I remember one of the you know the Jesus movies that have been out, greatest story ever told, or something like that. There's a scene where Jesus is there on uh, the hillside in Galilee saying the the, uh, the Beatitudes. And man, he, he sounds, you know, like he's reading the phone book in the movie. And there's no way that fishermen and farmers and housewives are going to leave all that they have to do and come stand out in a hot Galilean sun to listen to somebody talk like that. You know, Jesus was engaging. People wanted to listen to him. People wanted to be around him. And I, I think it's criminal for us to present the Word of God and the Gospel of Jesus Christ in any way other than an exciting and engaging way. And that and that goes off the stage too, right? That goes that goes in your day to Absolutely. in your day to day life, and I, I think that sometimes that's missed. We we I, see I, I we, we see communication and and see you know the the sermon as the as the time to learn and to to really grasp the you know who, about who he is but um is it is it a similar approach then in terms of you know focusing on being appealing and you know that the eye communication absolutely. it's the same approach absolutely uh in fact i would i would encourage parents to deal with your children that way i mean learn to communicate with your children in an engaging manner. Learn to talk to your neighbors uh, about their jobs uh, that way, and then it'll be a lot more natural and easier for you to talk to them about Jesus that way. You know, we, we just need to be engaging. I tell you, Tyler, uh, the greatest uh, really platform that I have for the gospel in my life is my marriage to my wife. It is astounding how we will be on vacation you know, and other couples uh, will say to us, hey, what, Ben, you guys are different. What, what's your secret? And it just opens a door of sharing the gospel with us. And so we've learned to be a good communicators when we, when we talk to people, when we uh, talk to one another, when we interact with our church members. It, you know, it, it forces me to be on. I will tell you, I am by nature, this might surprise and shock you, but I'm by nature an introvert. Uh, give me a book and or you know, a study and leave me alone and I'm a happy man. But I realize that's, I can't disciple. 
I can't do, I can't really have impact for the sake of the gospel if I remain alone. So I have to work to be engaging and to talk to people. Now, my wife, she's a natural at it, but I have to work at it. And I learn from her, and I've learned from Bert Decker and others. And, and I want to be engaging for the cause of the gospel, and it's, it's the most important thing I do. Mm. So, so that, that's actually quite interesting, and I'm, I'm thinking about that and um, just kind of want to play devil's advocate. And just I know that you know we're all given our unique gifts, and what we've been told to to play to our strengths and play to our gifts, um, and that you know everybody everybody has their own part to the whole. So, do you think that that's something that that still that's still in effect, or or is do we have to be is is that in order to be a more complete disciple and to disciple others we have to we have to sometimes you know take on things that we might not be that might not be in our in our you know in our, our forte well i'll put it like this i don't doubt that god uses people in spite of themselves that's our only hope isn't it uh, but i don't think we ever get to use our personalities as an excuse my personality is not an excuse for anything. In fact, my personality is the problem. Sanctification is the process by which the Holy Spirit overcomes my personality. You know, you, you don't you don't get to say to the bank, oh, you know, I know I didn't send you my payment this month, but hey, that's just who I am. And they respond to you, oh, well, that's who you are. Well, then we understand completely. It doesn't mm. matter if you're two months late. It's okay. That's who you are. You don't even get to say that to your wife. Again, most of our disagreements have come from my personality. So sanctification is the Holy Spirit helping me overcome the weaknesses of my personality. That doesn't mean that uh, God doesn't use my introversion in certain ways. He certainly uses people who write and communicate in other ways. But, you know, I, I, I have been blessed because of just the world I inhabit and being a professor at Southern Seminary. I get to meet a lot of guys whose books I've read and who I've, I've heard preach on the internet or whatever. And there's nothing more disconcerting than when I meet somebody who's a disappointment. It's like, wow, I, his books are so fantastic, but the guy's a jerk. Yeah. And I've, and I've met guys like that. And it's, I just, I just don't think the Lord is glorified in that. And then there are those guys that, man, I meet them and they're like, wow, that guy, He's everything I thought he was and more. I, I love that guy's spirit. And I just think that's that's what Jesus was. And that's what I want to be. So I don't get to use my personality as an excuse and say, well, you know, I'm an introvert. Therefore, I get to be withdrawn and somewhat sullen. I, I always you know, I tell my wife will sometimes call me a curmudgeon. I say, yeah, but I'm a lovable, lovable curmudgeon. She says, yeah, you don't get to make that call. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> so there's, yeah. there's truth to that yep. uh, I, I have to overcome my personality for the sake of the gospel and yeah. I, I just think that's that's what we do we surrender ourselves to the Lord and say Lord help me be what I need to be for your sake and that's going to take me out of my comfort zone I mean how many people really feel comfortable talking to someone else about Jesus but that's what God's called us to do and we we need to be working toward that end and strategizing so we can have that gospel conversation. And that may not be who we are naturally, but it needs to be who we become. 
Absolutely. I, I, I love that response. And that, I mean, that's just, that, that that's, that's well put and it, it makes sense. And I never, I, I never thought about it that way, but I think, and as you mentioned, using the, the, the different examples there that made a lot more sense with the, uh, you know, how you would, you know, or go, even going to a bank and, and something that, you know, if you didn't pay your, 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 if you didn't, you know, pay your, um, like loan on time or whatever, that's yeah. going to be something that it's, you know, it's, it's, it's on you. It's on you to change that. That's right. So That's I, right. I, I, don't think I love it works that. in any other arena of life. You know, it doesn't work. You, you know, your wife's not going to overlook your slovenly habits. If you say, Oh, that's just, right. no, it doesn't work anywhere else. And it really shouldn't work in the ministry. We, we, you know, your, your, your church people just walking through life with them. They need me to be more than I want to be naturally. And that's that's why I surrender myself to Christ. There there is a change in who I am. Wow. Um, I, I want to touch on just your your time at Southern Baptist Theological Sem Theological Seminary as a professor. Um, what's been the biggest change that you've that you've witnessed since you started? Oh my goodness! At Southern, well, the history of Southern Seminary is one of the most fascinating stories in. Uh, really evangelicalism because it was a very liberal seminary. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, yeah, prior to you know, Dr. Moeller becoming the president in 1993, uh, you, you just had uh, a lot of, well, I, mean, I, I would say heresy. There are no two ways about it. There were, there were people there that did not uh, have an orthodox view of scripture or salvation they signed what our, our doctrinal statement at Southern Seminary is called the Abstract of Principles. We have people there who signed it but did not believe it at all and were not held accountable for it. When Dr. Moeller came in 1993, he began systematically changing uh, the faculty to bring them back to uh, the original doctrinal intent of that Abstract of Principles. The seminary was founded in 1859. And... Uh, so in 1993, when Dr. Uh, Al Mohler became president, he, he really had to undergo a, a great trial and was, uh, I mean, they burned him in effigy on the seminary lawn at one point. He would preach in chapel and students would stand with their backs to him uh, when he first went there. I and mean, people today have no idea what, what Dr. Mohler went through. So I came in 1997. So he had been there four years, and he had begun the changes, and uh, and it was sort of I, I tell people it was like being in Iraq after Saddam uh, was was deposed, but before the, the war was truly over. You know, I mean, sure. you, there was no question where it was going, but you could still get shot. <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, that's the way it was when I first went to Southern. You know, there were professors on faculty that were that were still liberal at the time and uh it was just an interesting place to be i think by year 2000 2001 uh it was really all but over so i i have seen southern seminary come back to its uh gospel and theological roots i believe i serve with uh, i don't i don't think i'm being uh self-serving when i say i think it's the greatest evangelical faculty assembled in theological history uh, I feel like I, I, like Scooby Doo at the Westminster Kennel Club. I'm not quite sure why I'm there and how I fit with all these yeah. these brilliant godly men, but I'm delighted and honored to be a part of that faculty. So 
I, I really enjoy getting to teach students and uh, just be a part of their lives. And now having been there 20 years, uh, and I, I, I'm, I'm even the second generation. I, I think I saw you, you've uh, interviewed Trevin Wax. Yes. And Trevin was one of my students. And not only Trevin, but his dad. Oh, wow. I taught them both. So uh, what what an incredible blessing to be somewhere 20 years and to teach multiple generations of students. Uh, so God has just given me an incredible blessing. I, I, I tell people I'm God's spoiled brat uh, because he, he's, he's indulged me so. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it sounds like you're you're sharing that blessing and passing that blessing along. So it's being it's you know good fruit is being produced off of you too. So it's you're not you're not I don't think you're being too spoiled about that. Um, well, well, I want to I do want to bless others. I really that's yeah. the, the the goal of my life is to honor the Lord and bless people. Absolutely. Um, last last few questions I had. Um, want to know if you had a favorite verse in Scripture. You know, I, if I give you an answer now, it'll be different next week. Yeah. But I would, I would tell you that uh, I believe probably uh, Hebrews chapter thirteen and uh, verses twenty and and twenty one are would be my my favorite verse uh, verses. May the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great Shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through jesus christ to whom be glory forever and ever amen i love that that is an mm. incredible uh benediction mm. wow absolutely um well great and then the, the final question i uh, just wanted to ask you is just um it, what's something that you feel people should know about you or, or Anything else that you that you kind of want to, to let the audience know, and then and then you know if not, um, and then after just where can we follow you? What are some what are some ways for folks to get to get involved in your work? Okay, well uh, the one thing we haven't touched on that I always love to talk about is mm. my family, and I will tell you uh, I am married to Tanya uh, now for almost thirty seven years. She is the most incredible pastor's wife I have ever seen. She gets it like nobody gets it. She has a tremendous ministry herself. She uh, teaches seminary wives, uh, the marriage and family class at Southern Seminary. Uh, she's an incredible speaker to women's groups. And just going through life with her is uh, an incredible privilege and honor. We have two sons. One of them is uh, Michael, is a pastor in Salem, Missouri. And uh, Seth is uh, on staff at Crossings Ministries, uh, a, a camp ministry uh, here in Kentucky. And we have four grandchildren uh, and uh, a fifth one on the way. Uh, so I, I'm, I love my family and I am just uh, enjoy them very, very much. You can uh, follow me on Twitter at uh, Herschel York, but that is, uh, Herschel is really spelled weird. It's a weird name, but an even weirder spelling. It's H-E-R-S-H-A-E-L-Y-O-R-K. And I'm on Facebook. uh, uh, And I have a public page because I ran out of friends. But uh, Herschel W. York's my public page. Herschel York, you can follow on Facebook. I have a blog called PastorWell.com. 
and it's it's just a a way that I want to encourage and bless pastors and guys that are getting into ministry. I have some videos there, just practical things uh, and uh, little articles that you'll find. Uh, I got I talk about the most significant spiritual decision that my wife and I ever, I ever made. Uh, I talk about the how to lead your church, how we strategize and uh, activities in our church. All those kinds of things are there on at pastorwell.com. Pastorwell.com. Great. Awesome. Um, well, well, thanks for, for providing those, those, those different ways to follow you. And it, it sounds like you have a full house. Um, and, and a lot of, and it sounds like your, you know, your two sons are following in, in, in your footsteps too. Um, yeah, so I'm blessed. One I'm other sure thing you're excited. I should say, I'll, my sermons are available at buckrun.org. B-U-C-K-R-U-N. Buckrun.org. Uh, the, and you can get links to every week, uh, videos of the sermons and, uh, my whole book of Hebrews, book of Revelation, stuff like that. If anybody wants to take the time to listen or watch, uh, that's all there. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, um, just to, to wrap us up, I would just love for you to close us out in prayer. I'd be delighted. Father, I thank you for this time with Tyler. I thank you for this incredible ministry that he has, a uh, Bible study online and the impact that he's having. I pray that you'll just bless him in a great way. Increase his influence and effectiveness that he might reach many more with the gospel and disciple them and that you'll bless his gifts and uh, use him for your honor and glory. I pray for all those that listen to this and to his podcast from week to week. May you bless them with all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. We pray this for your honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.